0: الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان محمد wa ورسوله Sallallahu ta'ala alayhi wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa baraka wa sallama tasliman kathiran kathira Amma ba'du fa'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajim Rahim. In <tiperity> Allah, Sabbath, Lord, who will make a who you saloon, I don't be a Amanu, salo, I lay who was a limut sleep. Allah must lie, Allah Muhammad Ali ka Muhammad, Kama Sulayta, ala, wa ala Ibrahim. Wala Ali Ibrahim in the Khamidun Majid. Allah ala Allah Muhammad in Wala Ali Muhammad, Kama Barakta, Allah Ibrahim. Wala Ali Ibrahim in the Khamidun Majid. Respected listeners, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. <laughs> Alhamdulillah, once again, we gather for the annual graduation ceremony of a number of students who have completed the ilmiya studies, culminating with the study and the completion of Sahih al-Bukhari. Why do we attach such importance to the study of hadith and especially to the collection of Imam Muhammad ibn Ismail al-Bukhari? As Muslims, we all recognize that the foundation and fountainhead of our religion is the speech of Allah, His Kalam, the Noble Quran. Everyone recognizes this, Muslims and non Muslims. However, In the view of some, there is still some confusion and more and more questions are being raised, especially now about the second source of Islam, about the speech, not of Allah, but the speech of his noble messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, and the collection of hadith. This is a very serious topic. Many are now questioning the validity of hadith, its authenticity, its place in Islam, in the life of Muslims. We see people from all walks of life, all backgrounds, questioning the authenticity and the validity of the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The reason why the ulama attach such importance to the study of hadith is that the study of hadith is the study of the Holy Qur'an. There is no understanding of the Holy Qur'an without the commentary and the explanation of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The whole history of Islam shows that. In fact, the Qur'an itself shows that. And the life of the Messenger wasallam proves that. Allah taala says in four places of the Holy Qur'an, what the mission of the Messenger was, he explains the functions of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam's Prophethood and his duties and responsibilities. In fact, even before the birth of Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, even before the revelation of the Holy Qur'an, many generations before, two of the Prophets of Allah Alaihi Wasallam, his two forefathers, Sayyidina Ismail السلام, and his father Sayyidina Ibrahim they both being prophets of Allah and messengers of Allah, they also knew from their own experience that when the future prophet of Islam would arrive, one of their own children, one of their own progeny that they had hoped and prayed for, they knew that not only would he bring a book and a revelation from Allah, but that that revelation and that book would not be understood by anyone until it was explained and practically demonstrated by the same noble messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is why, upon the completion of the building of the Kaaba, both father and son prayed to Allah, hoping that at the Completion of this noble task of rebuilding the Kaaba, Allah would accept their du'a and prayer. And what was their prayer? رَبَّنَا رَسُولًا مِنْهُمْ يَتْلُو عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتِكَ وَيَعْلَمُهُمُ الْكِتَابَ that O oh, our Lord, raise from them, meaning from our progeny and our children, a messenger from them who will Recite to them your verses and teach them the book and wisdom and purify them. These three duties of Rasulullah are repeated in four places in the Holy Quran. This is the first one. So even the messengers of Allah knew beforehand. What was their own function and duty, and what will be the function and duty of the future messenger. For this is what all the prophets have done. Allah has communicated with his creation through the prophets and messengers, alayhim was But the messengers weren't simple careers. They didn't just convey the book of Allah and his revelation and leave the creation to it. All of the messengers of Allah communicated with Allah, received the revelation, conveyed that revelation to the people, explained that revelation, practically demonstrated to them how to live by that revelation and apply its te- teachings. And they worked not only on their minds but on their hearts and on their characters too. This was the duty of all the messengers. And these, all of what I have just explained is encompassed in these three GTs mentioned by Allah again and again in the Quran. The conveying, the recitation of the verses of Allah. One. Two, teaching the people the book and wisdom. And three, we Moulding and purifying and developing the character of Allah their followers. When the Prophet was in Makkah al-Mukarramah, the people of Makkah, the Quraysh, they repeatedly demanded of the Prophet that produce a book, bring us a book. You say Allah speaks to you. Bring us proof. In the form of a book bound by two covers. If you produce such a book, we will believe in you. For 13 years, Rasulullah remained in Makkah, preaching to the people, inviting them to his message. But many resolutely refused to believe in him. And one of their key demands was bring us a book. When the Prophet and yet, for those thirteen years Allah never never revealed a book in physical form. Not a single piece of paper. Then, when the Prophet arrived in Medina, the people of Medina, some of them, made exactly the same demand. Give us a book bring down a book from the heavens, one that we can feel and touch and read again for the next ten years, despite their incessant demands, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not reveal a book, in fact not a single piece of paper. The message was, the meaning was, that the Knowledge of Islam, the source of the sources of Islam, the foundation of Islam, is not a physical book that Allah would just give to the people. These were the Arabs. The language of the Quran was their everyday language, which, in which they would converse in in privacy at home, in public, in the marketplace. There was no one better suited to understand the Arabic of the Holy Quran than the Arabs of Mecca and Medina. For this was their everyday language. And yet they were never given a book. Never. The message was, the meaning was, You must learn your religion through the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. What he says to you you receive. He will recite the verses to you, but He won't just suffice with the recitation of the verses. He will also explain the verses to you. And not only will He just suffice with the explanation of the verses, He will practically demonstrate the meaning of those verses to you, and He won't suffice with that. He will also work on your hearts and minds and mold and form your characters according to the verses of Allah and the teaching of His Messenger That is the duty of the Messenger. And that's exactly what the Prophet wasallam did. Even the Sahaba, the noble companions, despite being poets, despite being naturally eloquent... Despite being masters of the Arabic language, they were dependent on the Messenger for their understanding of the Holy Quran. And the Quran itself shows that. As I said time and time again, Allah says, وَيُعَلِّمُهُمُ الْكِتَابُ وَالْحِكْمَةُ And He teaches them the book and wisdom. If the book was simply a book to read from cover to cover and to understand as one wishes and to apply and implement as one wishes, then what need was there for the Messenger ﷺ to explain the book to? them? They were the masters of the Arabic language. Even though Allah Himself says, وَلَقَدْ يَسَّرْنَا الْقُرْآنَ لِلذِّكْرِ فَهَلْ مِن مُدَّكَرِ Verily, we have made the Qur'an easy for remembrance, so is there anyone to remember? We have made the Qur'an easy, not only to remember, but as an admonition. Is there anyone to take heed and be admonished? The Qur'an is simple. The Qur'an is easy to understand. It's easy to remember. It's easy for admonition. So despite it being easy, why were the poets and the masters of the Arabic language and the noble companions radiyallahu anhum still dependent on the Prophet to teach them the book and wisdom and its meanings? Because that was a function of the messenger His explanation of the Holy Qur'an, his teaching of the book and wisdom, and this word wisdom occurs many in many places of the Holy Quran, Wal Hikmah al And in many places, though not all, the reference is to the teaching of Rasulullah and the hadith of Rasulullah. And we are far more dependent on the commentary and the explanation of Rasulullah than even the Sahaba This is why we attach such importance to the hadith. And when we look at the Qur'an itself, the very nature of the Qur'an, the Qur'an is a unique book. It's unlike any other book. It can't be read simply from cover to cover. It doesn't have a beginning, a middle and an end. It doesn't have a plot. It's unlike any other work of fiction or fact. The Qur'an is unique, because this is a speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and the Qur'an is the kalam of Allah. It's unlike any other book. As a result, we require the explanation of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa in order to understand the holy Qur'an. Those who argue that the Qur'an is sufficient, and this in itself is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Rasulullah sallallahu In a number of hadith Rasulullah we learn that the prophet sallallahu said Let me not find any one of you reclining on a couch satiated meaning filled with food after hunger Saying that here we have the book of Allah. What we find to be halal in the book of Allah, we will consider halal. What we find to be haram in the book of Allah, we will consider haram. I.e., that we will suffice with the book of Allah. Then the Prophet sallallahu alaihi continues in the hadith. He says, "Lo and behold, no. That what the Messenger permits is like what Allah has permitted." And what the Messenger forbids is like what Allah has forbidden. So, this is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Rasulullah that a time will come when people will dispense with the words of Rasulullah, with his tradition, with his sunnah with his hadith, with his teaching, with his commentary of the Holy Qur'an, and they will attempt to suffice with only the Holy Qur'an. And the fact is, with the Holy Qur'an, we cannot construct our religion. Even those who argue and say the Qur'an is sufficient, their own understanding of the Qur'an and their own application of the teachings of the Qur'an are full of contradictions. First of all, prayer. We cannot even derive five prayers of the day from the Holy Quran. Nowhere is it mentioned that you must perform five prayers. No way is the word five mentioned. And some of you may think, one minute, the Qur'an Quran does refer to the five prayers. Implicitly. By mentioning different times of the day. But the fact is, when we look at the, the verses, when we look at those words, they do not speak of five prayers. This is why we find some people who say, That there should only be three prayers during the day. We find others who say that there are only two prayers in Islam, morning and evening. If the Qur'an was explicit and categorical in its declaration of five prayers, would there be any such difference of opinion? There wouldn't. And when I say the Qur'an does not refer to the five prayers, I'm not speaking about implicitly, I'm not speaking by reference of hadith and other commentaries where we rely on other hadith or other commentaries to prove and show what the words mean. What I'm arguing is that if we isolate the words of the Qur'an and look at only the words of the Qur'an, we cannot even reconstruct our, our five prayers. Not the details, but just the fact that we have to pray five times a day. All the Qur'an says is established salah. In explicit terms. Five prayers we cannot reconstruct from the Holy Qur'an. And even if we were to argue that yes we can, fine. What about the details? The number of raka'at. The details of each raka'at. All the Qur'an says is, yes, indeed, Ya Bow and pray. Sorry, bow and prostrate. But again, what guarantee is there that this is in reference to Salah? In fact, the word Salah in itself simply means prayer. It means dua. And that could be in any form. Just sitting down, reclining on a couch and verbally praising Allah is in itself a form of salah. Where does it show in the Quran itself that the salah being referred to is this prayer that we understand with its cycles? The number of raka'at, the manner of prostrating, the manner of bowing. None of it is mentioned. So when we ask those who argue for reliance only on the Qur'an, and who argue for dispensing with the hadith, we ask them, how do you pray? Their prayer is no different to ours. So where do you get your prayer from? The answer is, surprisingly, this is a tradition of Islam. This is what we've always seen. This is the tradition of the people. So this is how we know that this is a prayer. So subhanAllah, the tradition of common people is accepted as being a source of Islam. The tradition of the community is accepted as being a source of Islam. But the tradition of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa is rejected. Without the hadith there is no salah. With the Qur'an by itself there is no salah. The same with zakah, the same with hajj. Only fasting seems to be a bit more explicit in the Qur'an than salah. But even then, فَقُلُوا وَشْرَبُوا حَتَّى يَتَبَيَّنَ لَكُمُ الْخَيْتُ الْأَبْيَضُ مِنَ الْخَيْتِ الْأَسْوَدِ مِنَ الْفَجْرِ ثُمَّ أَتِمُوا الصِّيَامِ إِلَى اللَّيْلِ Even then, one could argue, When is the the meaning of the verses? Therefore, eat and drink until the white thread becomes distinct to you from the black thread. Then, complete the fast till the night. What's the demarcation point for the night? When does a day stop and the night begin? Is it at the fall of darkness? Or is it with the sun setting? Because even after the sunset, there's twilight. Which in, in itself is an extension of the day. One could argue that even those words are ambiguous. And when Allah says the white thread from the black thread, again, there's a huge difference of opinion about this. The white thread and the black thread. In fact, even Adi ibn Hatim, one of the sahaba, he, despite being uh, a born native Arab, he misunderstood this verse. And the meaning of the distinction of the white thread from the black thread. Until Rasulullah did not correct him, and did not provide the explanation, he misunderstood. So, whether it's zakah, whether it's salah, whether it's fasting, siyam, and especially hajj, even these pillars of Islam cannot be performed at all without the tradition of Rasulullah. Without some tradition, reliance on the Quran in itself will not suffice. So one cannot reconstruct even the most fundamental pillars of worship in Islam with just the Quran itself. There is so much that the Quran does not refer to. One can only gain these things from the Hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The two are interdependent; each one relies on the other. There is no understanding of the Quran without Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. There is no obedience of Allah without the obedience of the Messenger. Say, if you if you love Allah, then follow me. مَنْ فَقَدْ أَطَاعَ اللَّهُ Whoever obeys the messenger, then he has obeyed Allah. And whoever disobeys Allah and his messenger, in countless places throughout the Qur'an, Allah has equated and conjoined his obedience with the obedience of the messenger sallallahu alayhi Wasallam. And his disobedience with the disobedience of the messenger. Obeying the messenger means to obey Allah. Disobeying the messenger is to disobey Allah. The only word, the only response of the believers when they are called to Allah and His messenger. judge between them, their only response should be, Sami'na wa We have heard and we have obeyed. Allah says, it is not permissible for a believing man or a believing woman once Allah and His Messenger wasallam) have decreed a matter that they should have any choice in their affair. Look how explicit the words are. That they should have any choice in their affair. And whoever disobeys Allah and His Messenger, then indeed he has erred a clear error. So verse after verse speaks of the obedience of the Messenger being equivalent to the obedience of Allah. And his disobedience being equivalent to the disobedience of Allah. In fact, not just obedience, one should not even feel any reservation with the judgment and with the verdict of Rasulullah They should not feel any reservation in their hearts. فَلَا وَرَبِّكَ لَا يُؤْمِنُونَ حَتَّى يُحَكِّمُوكَ فِي مَا شَجْرَ بَيْنَهُمْ ثُمَّ لَا يَجِدُوا فِي أَنفُسِهِمْ حَرَجًا مِمَّا قَضَيْتِ وَيَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا Allah says, Nay, by your Lord. He swears by himself. Nay, by your Lord. They will not believe until they make you the arbitrator and the ultimate judge in their common disputes. Then once they have made you the arbitrator, once they have made you the judge, they do not even harbor any reservation in their hearts at your verdict. وَيَسَلِّمُوا تَسْلِيمًا And until they do not submit a total submission, SubhanAllah, in this one verse alone, Allah says they will not believe and He swears by Himself, وربك, nay, by your Lord. They will not believe until they do not submit totally to your verdict, to your judgment. And not only that, but the submission shouldn't just be apparent. The submission should not only be in body, but in mind and heart, and such a submission that along with the physical submission to your verdict, and the verbal submission to your verdict, they should not harbor or experience any doubt or reservation in their hearts and minds over your verdict. Without total submission in body, in spirit and in mind, to the Messenger Wasallam, Allah in the Qur'an swears by Himself saying, they will not believe, they cannot become believers. I won't mention any hadith because... If the argument is that we don't rely on the hadith, we don't listen to the hadith, we dispense with the hadith, there's not much point mentioning the hadith because it doesn't constitute evidence. But looking just at the Qur'an itself, verse after verse speaks of the obedience of the Messenger being equivalent to the obedience of Allah. One cannot obey Allah without obeying the Messenger. One cannot worship Allah without following the manner of worship of Rasulullah. This is why we attach such importance to hadith. When the Prophet sallallahu wasallam passed away and left this world, the Sahaba anhum They collated the Qur'an. And having collated the Quran, they also began reminding each other of the words of Rasulullah. And the fact is that in Islam we have both an oral tradition and a written tradition. The oral tradition is part of the culture of Islam. In fact, it's part of the culture of many nations throughout the world. In history, what came first? The written tradition or the the oral tradition? It was always the oral tradition. The written tradition is merely a prop, a means of support for the oral tradition. Otherwise, throughout history, most of the creation has always relied on oral traditions. And... Oral traditions were very accurate, were very precise. There is, there is a record of someone who traveled to, someone who provided a lineage from their oral tradition. And the lineage went back to many, many generations. And most people thought this lineage was an act of what was fictitious. It just wasn't true. And for generations, people believed this lineage to be untrue. And recently, when they actually went and researched, they went back to Africa and researched this lineage, they discovered... That indeed it was true. And this was amongst those people who had no history of writing. The point is that the oral tradition has always been the main tradition of passing on knowledge. And this is exactly how the Arabs were. For them, the oral tradition mattered more than the written tradition. And this is why... One thing that is required, especially in religion, and in learning about religion, and in academia, is patience. One of the ulama told me that... He says, I was... This is a very famous scholar. He said, I was very sceptical in my youth. And when my father sent me to the ulama to learn, I would hound them with questions, always questioning them. I was very sceptical. I had been deeply affected by a non-religious tradition, by a hostile tradition. So I was actually quite hostile in my questioning. And so what I learned... And this is a message I'm giving to you. He said to me, what I've learned is be patient. And he said, sometimes 40 years have passed. And he's very old now. He said, 40 years passed. And only after 40 years did I discover the validity of what some of my teachers were saying. 40 years later. And this is someone who was very sceptical. Very questioning in his early days. Patience. I'll give you another example. Many academics were questioning the authenticity of the Holy Quran. Because the argument was that we have no verifiable copies of the Quran after the third century, till after the third century of Islam. So we have known manuscripts or actual physical copies of the Qur'an before the beginning of the fourth century. This was quite some time ago. So on that basis they ruled that the Qur'an was actually fabricated and it developed gradually as a work amongst certain Arabs over a period of 300 years. And that the Qur'an did not take its full form until the beginning of the 4th century. And the basis for this argument was that there are no physical copies or manuscripts available of the Holy Quran before the beginning of the 4th century. And many people relied on this. Then after decades, they began discovering manuscripts. that were actually carbon dated. And cross-referenced with other materials, and they were able to arrive at quite precise dates. So the dates were moved back. So the same people now began accepting that, yes, the Qur'an, we accept that the Qur'an was available in physical form at, uh, in, in, in the mid-third century of Islam. So they moved back a few decades. And then as the decades progressed, more and more manuscripts came to light. And the dates were shifted back further and further until last year i read that one of the manuscripts they discovered was so old that they date it as the latest meaning the latest that they say it can't be any later than this it's possibly earlier but not any later than this was during the time of Sayyidina Uthman ibn Affan within 15 years of the passing away of Rasulullah wasallam, It's not the full manuscript, but part of, not the whole Quran, but part of it. So within a number of decades, skeptical academics have traveled back almost 300 years in their dating of the availability of the Holy Qur'an. Why do I mention this? It's because the same thing has been done with hadith. We have an oral tradition in Islam. This is why the ulama have always taught in an oral manner. Our khutbah, our speeches, our sermons have always been oral. Our tradition has been oral. For the students of knowledge, if I can explain. Even the books of hadith, the written tradition was always a prop and a support for the oral tradition. The ulama always taught and related the hadith with a verbal transmission. If I can give you the example of Imam Malik, rahmatullahi and before I do, let me continue with that explanation about the written tradition. The hadith, one of the arguments for the hadith, which we hear quite commonly, regularly, that, oh, the hadith were fabricated 300 years after the Prophet wasallam. It's an interesting date. That is exactly the same date that was given for the fabrication of the Qur'an. 300 years. And now we hear it again regularly. The hadith are a fabrication... Of 300 years after Islam, after the Prophet. And the reason they mention 300 years is because most of the, well, not most, but many of the collections of hadith, the more famous collections, are from the third century of Islam. Since the, these were the famous authors. Imam Bukhari alayhi, died in 256 Hijri, Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal in 241 Hijri. Imam Darimi in 255 Hijri Imam Muslim in 261 Hijri Imam Tirmidhi in 2 Imam Ibn Majah in 273 Hijri Imam Abu Dawud in 275 Imam Tirmidhi in 279 Hijri These are the famous dates So most of the ulama that we are familiar with not the actual Collect, collectors of hadith, but the ones, the names are, are we, we are familiar with are from the 3rd century or later. Imam Nasi actually died in the beginning of the 4th century, 303 Hijri. And these are just some of the more famous names. For this reason, the common argument is that the hadith were fabricated in the 3rd century of Islam. And they never existed before. But, similar to the Qur'an, we began with the date of 300 years, but gradually the date was pushed back. As more and more manuscripts became available. Including that of Imam Malik, alayhi, who died in 179 Hijri. Imam Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani's books, he died in 189 Hijri. Some of Imam Abu Yusuf's books, he died in 181 Hijri. And he moved back even further and further. Imam Ma'mur, who died in 154. And then all the way back further to the Sahifah of Hammam ibn Munabbih and others. So now, gradually, from 300 years with the discovery of manuscripts, we've discovered manuscripts all the way up to the beginning of the second century of Islam. And the one interesting thing is that it's an oral tradition. In Germany, during the, before the outbreak of the Second World War, a number of German academics who were l- leading researchers in the field of the Holy Quran, they actually collected thousands and thousands of copies of the Holy Quran, many of which were unfortunately lost uh, because of the war. And they originally collected the manuscripts with a view to proving this theory that the Qur'an was a fabrication of later generations. And yet, with the discovery of the many, many different manuscripts, they were forced to ultimately admit that despite these old and ancient manuscripts that go back way before what we had first imagined, one thing we have learned is that there is no significant difference in the collection of these manuscripts and the Qur'an that is available throughout the world today. It's the same. The same with the hadith. As the hadith manuscripts were discovered more and more, and we move back, the earlier manuscripts only proved what the oral transmission of the later generation showed. And the reason is that oral transmission has always been part of Islam. We don't have a written tradition as much as we have an oral tradition. It goes back all the way to Rasulullah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent Jibreel alayhi salam. Jibreel alayhi salam came to Rasulullah. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Not with the book, but with the Holy Quran. He delivered the Quran to Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He delivered the Quran to the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Allah says in the Qur'an, لَا تُحَرِّكْ بِهِ لِسَانِكَ بِهِ إِنَّ عَلَيْنَا جَمْعَهُ فَإِذَا قَرَأْنَاهُ قُرْآنَا ثُمَّ Even if we don't look at the hadith, these words again explain the same thing. Allah says, do not hasten with your tongue. Do not move your tongue in order to hasten with it. The, the reciting of the Qur'an. Don't worry. It is our duty it is our responsibility, O Prophets of Allah, to recite the Quran to you and to collect the Quran to you in your heart. <laughs> then it is also our duty to explain the Quran. So ultimately, not only have the words come from Allah. Through his messenger, but even the bayan and the explanation of the words of the Quran have come from Allah through Jibreel, through Rasulullah. That verse also shows. And to give you an example about the Allah says, Wa Qur'ana. Inna alayna, Jama'hu wa Qur'ana. It is our duty to gather the Qur'an, to collect it, where in your heart? Wa Qur'ana, it is our duty to recite the Qur'an to you. Is that significant? It is. Language is a very strange thing. In, place, in many places throughout the world, they say that languages, language changes every 12 villages. In some parts of Europe, in the mountainous regions, they say every valley ha- used to have its own language. Every valley had its own language. People were separated from each other for a prolonged period of time. That resulted in differing languages. And when it comes to accents, even now, despite modern instant communication, the whole world becoming a global village, we still have regional accents. From one city to another, the language is the same, some words are different, the pronunciation of the words is different. And yet, another thing, is that this is now And even the pronunciation of the words of the same language in the same place changes decade by decade, generation by generation. Listen to the radio broadcasts or the TV announcements of received pronunciation ten years ago. And go back ten years, and go back ten years, and go back back ten years. Just in the English language. And you will detect a distinct difference in the pronunciation, the language, and its style, every couple of years. And that's just for a couple of years. And in contrast to that, Muslims are spread all over the world. All over the world. In every continent. And most of them don't understand the Arabic language. Most of the Muslims do not understand the Arabic language. It's not their native tongue. They don't understand a word of it. And yet, 14 centuries later, you may have a child in China reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. And you have a child in Morocco reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. You may have a child in Siberia and a child in America reciting Surah Al-Fatiha. Fourteen centuries after Rasulullah, sallallahu alayhi wa their pronunciation and their recitation, not just the recitation, but even their intonations and their pronunciation and their style of pronunciation, their qira'ah and their tajweed is exactly the same. Why? Because this comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the alaina, jum'ahu it is our duty to collect the Qur'an, i.e., in your heart and to recite it. فَإِذَا Qur'ana, Fattubi al Allah says, so O Muhammad, O Prophet, when we have read the Quran, and the meaning of when we have read the Quran, i.e. when Jibreel has read the Qur'an on our part. Sayyidina Abdullah ibn Abbas Sadi explains this in a hadith recorded by Imam Bukhari in his Sahih and by others, that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when Jibreel Alayhi salam would meet him he would move his lips to follow the Prophets, to follow Jibreel Alayhi salam because he would fear forgetting the words. So Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala said, do not move your lips in order to hasten with the Qur'an do not worry It is our duty to collect the Qur'an completely in your heart and it is our duty to recite the Qur'an to you. Quran. So when we have read the Qur'an, meaning when Jibreel has read the Qur'an on our behalf, then you follow his recitation. Then it is our duty to explain the Qur'an. This is why we say, not only have the words come from Allah through Jibreel, through the Prophet ﷺ, through the Sahaba رضي الله عنهم, and through that Isnad and chain all the way to us, but even the Qira'ah has come through that same chain. And not only has the Qira'ah come through that same chain, even the bayan, the explanation of the Qur'an, and the meaning of its words has come through the same chain from Allah, through Jibreel alayhi salam, through the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa through the noble sahaba anhum, and their students and their students all the way to us. This is the oral tradition. I was mentioning earlier about the oral tradition being paramount in Islam, not the written tradition. I'll give you an example. Imam Malik ibn Anas alayhi, his famous collection of hadith, the Muwatta. For many generations... Academics, non-Muslim academics, believe that the Muwatta was the oldest collection of hadith we had. But now, more and more manuscripts were discovered since, have been discovered since. And the dates have been pushed back further. And the earlier discoveries... For instance, one of the earliest is the Sahifa of Hammam ibn Munabbih. Hammam is one of the narrators to be found in the chains of transmission later. Now, generations later, with the discovery of the earlier manuscripts, wherever Hammam appears in the chains of narration of a hadith, you can compare the hadith collected by a scholar two centuries later, and you can compare that hadith with the hadith in the scripture of Hammam ibn Munabbih, because he was in the chain of transmission, and you can check both are exactly the same. Because... That is the oral transmission, the oral tradition of Islam. As I said earlier on for the students of hadith and the uh, Talabatul Ilm, if you look at Imam Malik, alayhi, Imam Malik, alayh, he passed away in 179 Hijri. Imam Bukhari wasn't born till 194. And yet you have many of Imam Malik's hadith in the Mwadda, uh, sorry in Bukhari. But do you know how? Imam Malik's Muwatta has many editions. But on average, if you look, there are approximately 700 murfur hadith in the collections and the Muwatta'at of Imam Malik. And if you look at the collection of Sahihul Bukhari, again, the number of chains in which Imam Malik features is the same, 700 approximately. The reason Imam Bukhari does not say, Imam Bukhari relates through intermediaries, so some of his teachers, like Abdullah ibn Yusuf, Abdullah ibn Maslamah, they relate from, these are the famous students of Imam Malik, they were the teachers of Imam Bukhari. So when they would relate the hadith, Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayh, Imam Abdullah ibn Maslamah, and Abdullah ibn Yusuf were the students of Imam Malik, they wouldn't just relate an oral tradition, they had their own copies of the muwatta They had their own copies. And when Imam Bukhari took these hadith of the, his teachers who were the students of Imam Malik, he had his own muwatta of Imam Malik from his teachers. And yet in Bukhari, you won't find, for instance, him saying that, oh, I read in this collection, I read in this collection, you won't. He just mentions it orally, because that is the main tradition of Islam, an oral tradition, an oral transmission. They would have their books, but these were mainly supports. So he will say, Abdullah ibn Yusuf related to us from Malik. He will say, Abdullah ibn Muslima related to us from Malik. What he is actually saying, verbally they related it, and along with that, they would have their copies of the Muwatta with them. But he wouldn't say, I got from the muwatta of Malik the edition and the copy of Abdullah ibn Yusuf, or the edition and copy of Abdullah ibn Muslim." That's just an example. This is what all the ulama have done. When you find these chains of transmission, not always, but in most cases, they would have written copies as support with them. So why not just mention the written copies? Because the tradition of Islam, all the way from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and before him Jibreel alayhi salam, and before him Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is an oral tradition, is a verbal transmission. This is why we attach such importance to the hadith in the manner that we study it. We don't just dish books out and tell everyone, find the commentary and study the hadith by yourselves. Or the Qur'an. even when it comes to just teaching surah al-fatiha when the teacher in the maktab or the kuttab says to the child how did we learn alhamdu so the child says alhamdu lillahi lillahi rabbil alamin rabbil alamin do you know even that tradition stretches back some people say we're in the modern day we have technology we're in the space age why do we have this old system of children learning in that manner? These maktabs where the teacher says alhamdulillah and the child says alhamdulillah. Why don't we just have multimedia systems? Subhanallah. You know, even that tradition, who does it stretch back to? It doesn't just stretch back to the Sahaba radhiyallahu anhum. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud عنه, says, I memorize 70 complete surahs directly from the noble mouth of Rasulullah alayhi salatu it doesn't just stretch back to the Sahaba what, did, what does Allah say in that verse? فَإِذَا Qur'ana فَاتَّبِعِ Fatibi لَا Qur'ana La لِسَانَكَ لِتَعْجَلَ بِهِ إِنَّ عَلَيْنَا جَمْعَهُ Alena فَإِذَا wa فَاتَّبِعِ O Prophet of Allah, do not move your tongue in order to hasten with the Quran, meaning remain silent. Listen to Jibreel. So the Prophet was silent. Jibreel alayhi would read. Once Jibreel alayhi finished his recitation, Allah says, Fa'ida then when we have read meaning Jibreel has read on our behalf, al Quran, you follow his recitation. This manner of reading where the teacher says Alhamdul and then the student listens attentively and says Alhamdul after him, even that simple memorization or that simple method of learning how to read the Quran stretches back not only to the Sahaba Anhum, but Jibreel salam and the Messenger. That is our oral tradition. This is why we don't just hand the Qur'an over and say, read and study it yourself. We don't just give a book of hadith and say, read, find a commentary. It's a translation in English. You're intelligent enough. You're proficient and verbally competent in English. Read and understand. No. These are merely props and supports. Our whole tradition, not just of the words, but of the pronunciation, the recitation, the intonation, even the accent of the Arabic, even of the Qur'an and even of the hadith is one, even the commentary of the hadith is an oral, verbal tradition which is interlinked with a, as a complete chain stretching from us all the way to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and before him through Jibreel alayhi salam to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That is how our Creator communicated with His creation. This is why we have the study of hadith in this manner. This is why we attach such importance to it. Allah instructed the wives of the Prophet ﷺ to attach importance to the hadith. What does Allah say in Surah Al-Ahzab? ma yutla fi wal hikmah? And remember, O wise of the messenger. Remember. And frequently repeat and rehearse that which is recited, that which is yutla, recited, in your homes of Ayatullah, the verses of Allah, that much we can understand. Remember the recitation of the verses of Allah, but He doesn't just suffice with that. Allah says, hikmah And wisdom. So the wives of the Messenger were told to remember and to rehearse that which is recited in the noble homes of the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, of the verses of Allah and wisdom, what's this other hikmah? What's this other wisdom that they are supposed to that is actually recited and repeated in their homes that they should guard and preserve and look after and remember? That is the Sunnah and the Hadith of Rasulullah. This is why we say, it's not just the Qur'an, it's the hadith of Rasulullah alayhi salatu wasalam. Of course, it's secondary in importance to the noble Qur'an. But, indeed it is second. Just as the messenger of Allah comes after Allah, the words of the messenger of Allah come after the words of Allah. Just as there is no obedience of Allah without the obedience of the messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam, there is no understanding or receiving the words of Allah without understanding and receiving the words of the Messenger this is why the hadith are so important Unfortunately, we are seeing the fulfillment of the prophecy of Rasulullah والسلام, in which he said, let me not find any one of you reclining on a couch, satiated and filled, saying, here we have the book of Allah before us. What we find to be permissible in the book of Allah, we will regard as being permissible. What we find in uh, forbidden in the book of Allah, we will regard as being forbidden. Then the Prophet ﷺ said, lo and behold, know that that which the messenger of Allah permits is like what Allah has permitted. And that which the messenger sallallahu has forbidden is like what Allah has forbidden. The hadith is indispensable. The Quran and the hadith are interdependent. They rely on each other. Without the hadith, there is no understanding of the words of Allah. There is no understanding of the holy Quran. There is no salah. There is no zakah, there is no hajj, there is no siyam, there is no fasting, there is no religion. If someone was to say Allah merely says salah," establish salah, and salah simply means prayer. It does. In fact, in the Quran it says, Allah condemns the salah of the Quraysh, of the pagans, before the arrival of Islam. And Allah says their salah by the house of Allah, by the Kaaba, was simply muqa'un wa which means whistling and clapping. So they used to perform tawaf around the Kaaba, whistling and clapping. That was their tawaf. And Allah calls that salah also. Oh that is salah. So one could argue that salah simply means pray. It can be in any form. Maybe whistling and dancing. Maybe just raising your hands. Maybe just muttering a few words. That is salah ultimately. Nowhere does it say five times with these prescribed hours. So I establish salah by muttering a few words. What argument will we have against that? There is no religion without the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu And those who even now dispense with the hadith, how do they pray? How do they perform their pilgrimage? How do they perform the rites of their religion and its rituals? How do they fast? Strangely, their salah and their fasting and their hajj and their method of giving zakah is no different to the rest of the Muslims. When we say, "Where did you get your salah from?" the tradition of the community, the history of the community. So, Subhanallah, the tradition of the community, though it may have become warped and distorted by ignorance over the generations and centuries, the tradition is a valid source of religion, but of the community, but not the not the tradition of Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. This is why the ulama attached such importance to hadith and they went through a lot of trouble. They underwent trials and tribulations and great struggles in order to gather the hadith. Imam Bukhari was wealthy to some degree because he was a trader. But he spent all his money in his search for hadith. And in doing so, he says, there were times when I was so poor that I had no food. And I, I, I ate grass continuously for three days in order to collect the hadith. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, the teacher of Imam Bukhari, and he died, uh, he died 15 years before Imam Bukhari in 241 Hijri. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, his collection of hadith, is the largest known collection we have at the moment with a complete chain of narration. He has approximately 27,000 hadith in his musnad. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi, this Imam of the Ahl-Sunnah wal-Jama'ah and the Imam of the Muslims, he says that I travel to Makkah in order to learn and listen to hadith from my teachers. And I used to earn my own living. So during the day I used to go out and work as a coolie. He used to be a luggage carrier. So if someone wanted any luggage to be carried, he would carry it for them from place to place, spot to spot, and they would pay him. He was a coolie. And that was Imam Ahmad ibn hanbal Imam Yahya ibn maeen He says that when my father passed away, he left behind 1,050,000 dirhams. 1,050,000 dirhams. And over the years, depending on the price of silver and silver, the, the equivalent a few years ago it was about one pound ten per dirham. And again, because of the price continuously fluctuates, at times it's been more. I don't know the exact price now, but it's definitely more. At one time, it was actually close to two pounds. So the price of one dirham was close to two pounds. But even now it's quite uh, valuable. But let's go by the one million figure, one to one. That's well over 1.1 million pounds. So he says, when, I, when my father passed away, he bequeathed to me over a million pounds sterling. He said, I spent all of it in the search of hadith, so much so that I became so poor that I could not afford straps for my sandals. I could not afford sandals. The ulama went through a lot in their search for hadith and its collection. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala employed them. They didn't just discover the hadith or find it or fabricate it. They collected the oral tradition as I explained that was already there and they merely documented it. And their memory was prodigious, miraculous, remarkable. And this is what aided them. The Arabs were people with an oral tradition who do not rely on notes. They generally have a good memory. And in fact, even now, those who wish to improve their memory should be become less reliant on notes. Take notes mentally. When we shift and transfer the burden of memory from our minds to paper, we develop a dependence on that paper. And we reduce our natural ability to remember. And that's why we become so dependent. This is why we can't remember what we had for breakfast and question the memory of the muhaddithin. Indeed, they had a prodigious memory. And Imam Bukhari, alayhi, when he once entered a city, they wanted to test him. Because they had heard about him, his memory. And they wanted to test him. So when they gathered, the, the ulama of that time, they, they reveled in memorizing hadith and testing one another for hadith. For them, it was that's what they enjoyed doing. They enjoyed... Relating hadith in a very obscure manner. So, for instance, Imam Bukhari would visit some people. He once said that you all know these hadith, and they said, Yes, we know these hadith. We we all knew them by heart with their complete chains of transmission. He says, I will relate the same hadith to you, but in a unique manner. Such a manner. That you have heard these hadith and your chains of hadith go through scholars from other regions. But I will relate the same hadith to you, but with the scholars from your own region. So that they would revel in relating hadith in these in this obscure manner because this is what they lived and breathed they loved the hadith of rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam and normal memorization normal collection had become so natural and so normal that in order to revel in order to stimulate their minds they would have to resort to these kind of methods of relating hadith in, in an obscure manner and testing one another in an obscure manner and Imam Bukhari was a master of that. That's why he says once, he says, مَسْتَصْغَرْتُ kuntu He says, Bukhari was so self-confident. He says, I have never considered myself small before anybody. Except Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. He intimidated me. I was never intimidated by anyone in their learning and in their knowledge. Except, that doesn't mean he was disrespectful far from it. He was extremely respectful. But in terms of reliance on what he knew, he was self-confident. He did not consider himself small and intimidated by anyone. He was very humble and respectful as a student of knowledge should be. So he says, I never considered myself small before anyone, except Imam Ali ibn al-Madini. But even with such a great Imam as Ali ibn al-Madini, sometimes, I would mention a hadith to him, which even he did not know. Now, when we say hadith, we're not talking about the text, just the text. Each hadith with its individual chain of transmission is considered a hadith. Then the same text with a slightly different chain of narration is considered another hadith. So when they say, for instance, I mentioned a hadith to him, which even he did not know, it doesn't mean a complete new text, far from it. It means with a unique chain of narration, with a unique sanad. So I would mention a hadith with a unique sanad, which even he did not know. This is how far they went in their search and collection of hadith. And this is how prodigious their memory was and their ability was. For them, memorizing the hadith was like memorizing the Holy Qur'an. It was like water. Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayh. Why do we attach such importance to the collection of Imam Bukhari? There are so many other collections. The reason is, he was very stringent in his conditions. And that's why he collected the elite. He collected only from the elite of the scholars and the elite of the narrators. His collection is the cream of the crop. The creme de la creme of hadith. It indeed is the top. To give you an example, Imam Malik, for instance, he had many students. This is just one example. He had many students. Imam Malik, was regarded as a master of hadith. He had many students. Some students visited him, heard the hadith from him for one or two years, and then left. There were others who visited him, heard just a few hadith and left. There were others who spent a few years with him. Many years, actually. And there were others who spent a lifetime with him. So, depending on the amount of time they spent with the teacher, and their own ability... And their level of learning, and the amount of time they spent in the company of their teacher, not just in public, but also in private, the students were graded. So these ulama were of the first category, then these ulama were of the second category, then these ulama were of the third category, these ulama were of the fourth, fifth, sixth category. So in just the students of one scholar, they would grade the ulama into categories. So grade one, category one, would be those scholars who spent many, many years, most of their life with the teacher. And grade two would be those, category two would be those scholars who spent many years with their teacher. Degree two would be those teachers who... Those scholars who spent many years with their teacher, but not as much as the closest students of the teacher who are category one. Category three were those who spent many years, but they were not as close to the teacher or as capable as category two. Subhanallah. Many of the other ulama, including Imam Muslim, would take the hadith even from category three and four. And others would take hadith of this scholar narrating from his teacher even though they were of category 5 and 6 Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi his condition in his sahih is that he would only take a hadith from category 1 and 2 this is why his hadith represent the cream of the crop and the elite of the scholarship of the, the ulama of hadith and this is why there are so many collections but none matches or even rivals the collection of Imam Bukhari, his ability, his knowledge, his memorization, his editing of the hadith, and his stringent authentic conditions means that we have the best of the hadith of Rasulullah in the form of Bukhari. There is so much to say, I... Pray that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala I suffice with this and pray that Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala enables us to understand the significance, in fact the vital nature and the indispensability of the hadith of Rasulullah. May Allah enable us to maintain this tradition of Islam, of learning through sanad and ijazah, of authenticity stretching back all the way to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa and through him to Jibreel alayhi salam, and through him to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We pray that Allah enables all of us to attach ourselves to the words of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Their application, just as we attach ourselves to the words of Allah in the Quran and their application. This lecture was delivered by Sheikh Abu Yusuf Riyadhul Haq and has been brought to you by Al Kotha Productions. For additional lectures and products, please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under licence by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorised distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording will constitute a violation of copyright.